0: Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Friday. First off, let's get to our sponsors. Jen Gilbert and the team want you to know for over 40 years, since 1976, the dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker Cityside Realty have served Lloydminster and the surrounding area. They are passionate about our community, and they pride themselves on giving back through volunteer opportunities and partnerships as often, often as they can. We know that home is truly where awesomeness happens. Coldwell Banker, Cityside Realty, for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Give them a call, 780-875-3343. Foremost, they offer smooth-walled grain bins, hopper bottoms, and fuel tanks. They're in stock and manufactured locally. They want to ensure you know they are constructed of the highest quality and engineered for a long life. Delivery is free within 300-kilometer radius of Lloydminster, and you can buy from many of their co-op locations, Lloydminster, Lashburn, or Neilburg. For more information, you can check them out on their website, foremost.ca. HSI Group, they are the local oil field burners and combustion experts that can help make sure you have a compliance system working for you. The team also offers security, surveillance, and automation products for residential, commercial, livestock, and agricultural applications. They use technology to give you peace of mind so you can focus on the things that truly matter. Stop in today at 3902 52nd Street or give Brody or Kim a call at 306-825-6310. Lauren at Art and Soul, uh, the passionate, hardworking lady that she is who does everything for me, uh, can make your family heirloom, your jersey, your favorite piece of artwork come to life. I tell you what, she does amazing work. It'll stand out and hold up to the test of time. She's open Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Give her a call, 780-808-6313, or stop in 50-1639 Street. It's more than just a frame. It's a story. SMP Billboard, shout-out to Read&Write and the talented Deanna Wandler. And I should give a shout-out, you know, to Sean Woodman. He's the guy who has come in and hooked me me up with uh, my slogan on the wall and done all the talent work, making sure it is just straight and right, and writing. what an amazing job he does. A uh, special thanks, uh, you know, before we start here, special thanks to Lloydminster Archives, uh, who helped put together these each, uh, I guess, every second Friday currently, and especially Lynn Smith, who is working tirelessly behind the scenes. She helps line up all the interviews, and I don't know where I'd be without her, so thanks, Lynn. Now, If you're interested in advertising on any of the shows, visit SeanNewmanPodcast.com. In the top right corner, hit the contact button. Send me a little bit about uh, what you're thinking. And we got lots of different options, and I want to find something that can work for the both of us, and uh, we'll get something happening, all right? Now, here is your T-Bar 1, Tale of the Tape. Originally from Ottawa, Ontario. He spent his life in the educational system, beginning as a single-room school teacher and moving all the way up to become a superintendent. He uh, had moved all across Canada, working in different small towns, villages, cities, and he worked his way to Lloydminster, Alberta, Saskatchewan. Here, he spent 16 years as the director of education of the Lloydminster School District. I'm talking about Don Duncan. So buckle up. Here we go. So today is July 5th, 2020. Um, I'm sitting across from Don Duncan. So thank you first and foremost for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, this is about your life. So you're the expert. You're going to guide us through it. Um, I guess let's start with life in Ottawa. You were born in Ottawa, 1946, July 31st. Uh, What do you remember about growing up in the city of Ottawa?
1: I remember that Ottawa was a very different place from the city it is now. Um, it was a relatively small city at that point, probably a 100,000 ish um, in population, um, two thirds English speaking, one third French speaking. So it was very much a bilingual um, environment. Um, and um, people, uh, had their respective neighborhoods I suppose Um, but uh, all in all it was a a very congenial place to to grow up.
0: Did you learn French then growing up?
1: I did. Um, Don't challenge me on it now. (laughs) Uh, It's been many many years since I've used it with any fluency Um, but yes I had the basic instruction of course in public school and, and high school, um, but more usefully, I had a, a job as a grocery clerk in a, a store that served a, a clientele that was um, largely French-speaking, um, and so I learned the vernacular there. Um, as well, in those days, Ottawa had only one television station um, operated by the CBC, and the practice was that alternate days were English or French. Really? Yep. And so every second Saturday night, for example, um, hockey night in Canada was either... Um, the English Tro- or French. The Toronto Maple Leafs in English or the Montreal Canadien um, in French. And um, that was, a, again, a good learning context uh, to pick up the language. And then, when I went to the University of Ottawa, it was truly a bilingual institution. Um, and the history courses that I took um, predominantly um, were typically fairly small in, uh, in, in number of students. And if a question were asked in French, it would be answered in French by the professor. If it were asked in English, it would be answered in English by the professor. Um, And so to follow along um, and capture the content of the course, um, one had to become.
0: Otherwise, you're missing half the course.
1: You're missing half the course, um, and one doesn't want to do that. Uh, So yeah, it it was a great place to grow up and, and learn our other official language. English-speaking people, by nature, I think, are very lazy when it comes to learning other languages, um, because they don't really have to. Um, They travel anywhere in the world. Yeah, that makes it too easy. Um, And so we do tend to become a little bit lazy. And um, I'm grateful that I had the challenge um, and the context in which to, uh, to learn some French.
0: The hockey player in me wants to know, growing up in Ottawa, watching Montreal one Saturday night and Toronto the next Saturday, what was your favorite team growing up?
1: Chicago Blackhawks. <laughs> 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 uh, for, for no good reason. I, I, I like the sweater, I think, basically, but uh, it was red, white, and black. And of course, those were the colors associated with Ottawa teams historically as well. Um, and uh, so I don't know, it, there was no good reason for it, but uh, yeah, that that was the team I tended to follow.
0: <laughs> How about your parents? I know uh, in reading a little bit about you, uh, your father worked on the railroad. Yes. And you had a job on the railroad at one point in time.
1: Various jobs for during the summers. Um, cleaning coaches um, at That time, rail travel was the dominant way of getting around in the country. And um, there were trains, several trains, Ottawa, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto. And you could get the transcontinental um, passing through Ottawa as well. And um, when the engines pulled in, uh, my job was to do a couple of things. Clean the windshields um, of 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 the engines um, for those trains that were through trains, um, and uh, otherwise those trains that terminated uh, or originated in Ottawa, all of the the coaches um, and other parlor car and bar car et cetera et cetera um, would be parked um, along the the rail yard that at that time was right beside the Rideau Canal um, and uh, my job was to clean um, the coaches and uh, so that's something that uh, provided good income for a student. Um, that rail yard by the way, a uh, long way from Lloyd Minster to Ottawa, but um, if you ever see pr- Um, political broadcasts from Ottawa and there's the National Conference Centre where many of these conferences are held. Um, The uh, National Conference Centre is the old Union Station um, in Ottawa and uh, that's where um, I was based for part of my work on on the CN and um, otherwise I worked as a hostler's mate, um, preparing diesels for the road, fueling them up, for example, and um, making sure the supplies were appropriate in the cab for flares, et cetera. Um, and uh, one summer, I worked as well uh, as a switch tender. Um, in those days, all of the switch lamps in the rail yard were kerosene lamps. Um, and so they had to be filled regularly, and lenses cleaned and replaced, and wait,
0: so on. Wait, wait, wait! Switch lamps. You're talking. Explain that a little better. Okay. Or not better. A little deeper.
1: Sure. Um, when the engineer wants to take his train from one track to another track or a siding, right? Um, it's necessary for a switch um, to be thrown that moves the 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 track over a little bit so that the flange on the wheels is drawn to the the side. Um, And each switch, um, apart from having a a long handle on it for the actual moving of it, um, had a lamp. And the lamp comprised um, two different colors, front and back, um, if the train would go straight through, There were green lenses, right on the side. There were red
0: lenses. So whichever color it was, they knew whether they were turning or going straight. And that, at one point in time, was a kerosene lantern.
1: Exactly. Yeah. In inside those lenses uh, was a little reservoir for kerosene and a wick um, that had to be trimmed properly, of course, and uh, replaced when when needed. Um, And so yeah the the technology has changed somewhat
0: it's got to be over because you would be turning 71 this year at the end of July
1: actually I'll be turning 74 74 in th- four weeks yeah
0: What year were you born 46 46 I was thinking 49 no 46 okay You've seen a lot of different things over your your time, and some of the places you've been, you've seen no electricity to now where we're doing exactly what we're doing in this room. Mm -hmm. What has given you the most pause over a lifetime? Uh,
1: Perhaps the speed of change um, and how it's accelerating. Um, How, you know, with transportation, for example. Um, Going from trains that were relatively slow and um, not always reliable in terms of scheduling um, to moving to much more air travel. Um, And how air travel, my first flight, I remember um, I and a a buddy flew down to Bermuda to visit a friend. from Ottawa, and uh, it was an old um, Super Constellation aircraft, um, propeller driven, of course. Um, And uh, you know, Ottawa to New York, refuel uh, onto. What
0: what year would you have done that?
1: Ah, that was the year um, I just finished teacher's college. So that would have been 1966, 67. Uh,
0: centennial year and you flew to Bermuda that was the first time you'd ever been on a plane what did you think your first time you got on a plane and taken off and all of a sudden looking out the window and yeah
1: air travel then was very different I, I mean it was exciting you know just the actual thrill of flying for the first time but um air travel then was a much different experience from what we experience today um There was space between the seats. Um, You wore a jacket and and tie, probably, to to travel. Um, There was meal service with real plates and cutlery uh, in those days. Um, And it was very much a a luxury um, means of travel. And luxury, frankly, I wasn't very used to. Um, and uh, so it was a really uh, an interesting experience.
0: Is there a type of travel, do you think, right now, that even resembles that anymore? Like the luxury side of it? Because when I hear, like, you get dressed up. It was an occasion to go on a plane. <laughs> yeah. Do we have anything like that anymore? Like a cruise ship, maybe? But even then, you don't really get dressed up to go on that, do you? Some
1: people do. Um, I've long since given up getting dressed up. <laughs> uh, I had enough of that um, and it's not really who I am. and um, But I know for the one cruise that my wife and I took a few years back, um, there were people who took suitcase upon suitcase um, with different costumes um, that they would wear, some much more formal than others. Um, and, well, okay, if that's how they get their enjoyment, good on them, um, but uh, again, um, for me it's it's not authentic, it's not who I
0: am. Hmm. You mention or you talk about in your biography you've uh, started on, about when you were young, a bakery around the corner ah. and the draft horses. Uh, Could you lead us down that for a little bit?
1: Yeah. Um, We lived on Rosemere Avenue in Ottawa East. And uh, about two blocks away was Walker's Bakery. And it was a large bakery. um, And the smell of fresh bread every day, it was just wonderful um, in the neighborhood. And um, as a two-year-old, I took it upon myself. me and my trusty dog, Skipper, um, to uh, go down and see the horses because um, in those days um, bread and milk, for that matter, um, was delivered door to door by horse-drawn wagons um, and um, each bakery or dairy kept its own stable of draft horses. Um, and. Um,
0: so the bakery had a stable of draft horses.
1: Yes, yeah, and and it was, as I say, about two blocks from where I lived um, as a toddler, um, and every day I'd see um, the bread wagon or the the milk wagon, um, you know, coming down the street, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go and see where where they go, um, and uh, so I trundled off. Uh, unbeknownst to my mother um, giving her a heart attack <laughs> oh gosh I, I could only imagine and uh, so the, the, the dog and I walked down um, one of the neighbours which was a good thing I suppose and, and everybody knew everybody else of course in the neighbourhood um, phoned my mother and are you missing a, a small boy and a large dog and and uh, I was put on the map at that point and, and, and fetched pretty quickly, um, but yeah, it, it was uh, a wonderful neighborhood to grow up in.
0: You also mentioned the sea cadets. I picked that out of the, the things yeah. you, you talked about. It allowed you to go different places and uh, uh, experience, um, I, w- I would assume you had some learning on, on those trips and being a part of uh, that organization?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if the military culture in Canada is as prominent as, as it was um, back in in the 60s. Um, we were much closer to the the war years at that point um, and so there was more Awareness, I guess, and engagement with military or things quasi-military in Quebec. Um, I joined the Sea Cadets um, and um, enjoyed the challenges. I enjoyed the camaraderie of of the situation. I enjoyed the structure, um, and um, I all became a, a petty officer in in the uh, in the ranks. I was the Second um, highest ranking cadet, I guess, in the Corps. Um, but yeah, wonderful opportunities. Uh, travel down to um, Cape Breton, to uh, North Sydney, Point Edward Naval Base at that time. It's closed now, of course. Um, and uh, spent some weeks there um, doing, you know, es- essentially boot camp type training and, and developing skills, uh, some uh, signalling skills and sailing skills on the harbour, um, and seeing a part of the country um, that at that time um, I wasn't aware um, was um, one of the home areas, at least briefly for um, my great-great-grandfather um, and, uh, in, in North Sydney. And uh, so, again, it gave me a chance to experience uh, that travel.
0: When you were away, uh, it isn't like today where you got FaceTime and, I don't know, everybody has got a cell phone to talk to your parents. How did you stay in touch with your parents, or did they just wait for you to come home?
1: They waited for me to come home. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, again, I, I think... One of the qualities that has helped me over the years is a wee bit of a sense of independence, um, that whatever situation I'm in, um, I want to participate in that situation um, and you know, not be distracted um, by people or things far away. Um, I'll get to them, and when I'm there, I'll be engaged, um, but not constantly. And um, I think, you know, one of the benefits of, of that kind of an experience is that you learn to live with yourself. Um, you come to understand who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are, um, and you're not in a position or a situation where you're constantly defined by other people's opinions or expectations of you. Um, and, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I see young people nowadays, you know, captured, actually addicted to their electronic devices and um, very much um, sensitive to the opinions of, of their friends um, some of whom are real friends many of whom aren't um, and whatever the expectations of that audience might be tend to shape um, who the individual is and that's not good um, we, we need to understand how we're influencing or affected by others, but we can't constantly let them define us.
0: It's very interesting in my short time because I remember a time where I, I didn't like being people being able to get a hold of me. That was only like 14 years ago. Didn't have a cell phone, didn't have one of those contraptions, and I remember having jobs where if you were on off on the weekend, work wasn't getting a hold of you because you were at the lake or you were off on whatever, and if they called the house and you didn't pick up, what could they really do? Exactly. And now you raise an interesting point because the thing is almost as much a part of you as anything else in life because everybody has one now. If you don't, you're kind of the odd person that doesn't have a cell phone. And on top of that, if you don't answer immediate, you know, immediate gratification of like getting, you know, sending a text or a a phone call, if they don't answer and they don't call you back or they don't text you immediately, you're almost hurt by that because you expect them at any hour, any time. you know, it's uh, the cell phone is the ability to pretty much be anywhere and be contactable. And that is uh, something that, you know, for a lot of years of your life, your, your generation, grew up where for the majority of their life it wasn't like that. And any kid now from essentially 2000 on, maybe late 90s even on, that is not the case anymore.
1: Well, and the drawbacks, you know, I mentioned the fact that people tend to allow their character to be shaped more by the opinions of others than their their true character. Um, the other Drawback, I think, of modern communication with its instant gratification is that it causes us to be lazy, mentally lazy. And so, for example, if somebody tries to get you now and needs an answer right away, and they can't get you, if it's a significant situation, then the challenge to them is to figure it out for themselves. Um, and take responsibility for it um, and now um, you know that laziness I guess um, and refusal to accept responsibility um, diminishes I think us as as people um, I find you know this is a related example I guess that um, I have a a Garmin GPS device um, that if I'm traveling somewhere I'll, I'll sometimes use it if if I'm trying to get from point A to point B in an unfamiliar country. Um, but I only use it when I have to. Um, i much rather look at a map and Visualize where it is I'm going and what time I want to get there and what route I should take and things I should avoid, etc., etc. And then when I'm driving, I'm watching. Oh, okay, there's the sign for um, whatever, or how many miles or kilometers to um, the destination. And I'm thinking, I'm there, um, and I'm observing. If I have the GPS on, it's almost like I'm mentally on autopilot, um, where it's doing the work for you. It's doing the work. I'm just here to steer and use the accelerator or the brake, um, and I really don't have to pay close attention to where I am and what's happening. Um, And again, that becomes a, a mental habit. Um, Let the technology look after it, or let somebody else look after it if I have a question because I can get them immediately and I know they'll respond. Um, And, you know, again, that diminishes us as authentic people.
0: Yeah. I always say, you know, if a guy could have Don and his father and then his father's father and then his father's father all sit in the same room and have a conversation i'm sure every generation would look to the or the one previous would look at you and go you don't even know how to do this but go all the way down to us and yourself you probably look at your kids and do the same thing right to a degree to a degree Uh, I, i always loved the map because it, it felt like you were an explorer, right? Like, if you can yeah. figure out the map and you get lost, you, you figure it out yourself. There's this all, uh, a sense of accomplishment in that. I got from here to there. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting when you bring up GPS because you just don't even think about it anymore. Now it's on your phone, right? You don't even need to buy a Garmin anymore <laughs> to have. Exactly. It. Everything is programmed into the phone. Yeah. The phone can pretty much, you know, a lot of people are lost without that device. I I always talk about, when I was growing up, We had I wrote down all my friends' home phone numbers yes. on a piece of paper. That was your phone book. And for you, maybe you actually had like a little black book where you wrote down people's names and that was your contact book. Mm-hmm. Now if you ask a single soul what anybody's number is, well... Yeah, it's, it's right here. It's right here. <laughs> Nobody has an idea anymore. No.
1: and. Again, they don't have to put their brain through the mental exercise of, of learning these things. And the point is, too, that you know, even the physical activity of writing something down, um, it activates a different part of the brain, it reinforces the thinking process um, that you engage in, and, um, surprise, surprise, you end up with higher quality thinking as a consequence. Um, And so, yeah, if, you know, among the concerns that I would have for future generations um, is becoming over-dependent on the artificial intelligence um, that's available to serve us um, and the price that we as individuals pay in diminishing our own capacity by using it.
0: And we've got down a rabbit hole right now, so I apologize. All I ever think about (laughs) now when I I get going on this is Lynn always goes, somebody's got to write this all down. And I always, they're sitting here writing me down as we go. But what you're talking about is in school, I read, uh, we read a book, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was talking about kids forgetting how to do math because they used a calculator all the time. And this is back probably, I was in Helmond at the time, so Mm -hmm. late 90s maybe. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where they no longer flew planes, robots flew planes, and they were trying to teach themselves how to do that all over again, and this is years way in the future. And you think, at the time, I remember thinking as a kid, oh, we'll never forget how to do long-form math. Like, oh, my goodness, like, give it a rest. But now you got a genius of a computer that goes with every kid. Like I say, I keep pointing at the phone because nobody can see that, but the phone can do pretty much anything for you right now, and it will be interesting to see what happens with... 10 years in advance, 40 years in advance, 50 years, 100 years? Well,
1: this, this gets back to what I said earlier in terms of the accelerating pace of change. Um, and the challenge, among the challenges, um, is for us as a civilization or as a society, as Canadians, um, to decide who is really in charge Um, of not only the rate of change, but the direction of change. And who owns the product of all of those changes? And as we diminish the engagement of real people um, and real brains, um, who profits, who loses? Um, And who controls? Um, You know, should, uh, and again, I think we're going off on a tangent here, but um, who regulates um, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft? um, And um, are they following or pursuing what is technologically possible without giving enough thought to the values associated with the technology. Um, And I'm afraid that uh, we're letting technology run rampant and taking control of our lives in many, many ways um, to the detriment of our humanity.
0: Where do you think it goes then in the next 20 years?
1: Oh gosh, Um, it depends how much smarter we as a society become in regulating um, the applications of artificial intelligence um, and the other sciences, the biological sciences, genetic science for example. Um, We need to take an interest um, as citizens um, as to where all of this is going and if we don't take an interest then um, I'm afraid we we end up somewhere where we never planned to go um, and we end up subjugated by um, the technology that controls us Um, the fragility um, of our society increases um, year by year as the sophistication of the technology increases. Just imagine um, if we were to go, if the electricity were were to shut off right now. We'd be hooped. We'd be hooped. This interview, of course, would
0: would stop. That would be a way of putting it politely. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Um, but what would work in the city of Lloydminster if there were no electricity available? if all of a sudden we were off the grid or there were no grid. Um, and, you know, a, again, as things become more technically sophisticated, um, their fragility, by definition, increases. Um, and we may be putting on our, ourselves in a situation where we rely overmuch on um, the technology that could at some point fail us. Um, you know, I think in terms of the, the, the skills that um, our ancestors had um, either centuries ago um, or even as recently as 50 years ago, um, you know, the ability to uh, well, build something ourselves with hand tools, for example, um, the ability to know how to build a fire <laughs> um, properly. Um, where to find fuel? How to, you know, get food when um, you don't have the supermarket down the street? Um, all of those things, um, you know, we're setting aside in favor of the convenience of technology. And I'm not a Luddite. I, I'm not suggesting we get rid of technology, but I'm suggesting that um, we better understand it and. Control it before it controls us.
0: Let's go then. I I got so many questions that come out of that, but I think of when you talk about um, what would life look like with no electricity. My brain pops to Collins, Ontario, and I thought maybe you could give the listeners an idea. I've read the story; I find it absolutely fascinating. And I could be wrong. I said this before we started that when. I look back at a person's life and I go, I bet they got one thing that just sticks out like that was a time. Collins, Ontario has to be it for you. And maybe there's multiple after that, but let's share the journey to Collins and then life in Collins. Okay.
1: Um, Well, the the preamble, I guess, to Collins was that um, my first year of teaching as an elementary school teacher was in Ottawa. Um, And I never had fewer than 42 kids in my grade four or five split um, classroom. Um, And um, although I did okay, and the school system was happy with my work, um, it was not a rewarding place to work as a teacher. Um, It was much more babysitting than than teaching, given the numbers involved. and I ended up, um, as a consequence, um, resigning um, that position, um, going downtown in Ottawa to Laurier Avenue, where the, uh, at that time, the Department of Indian, Indian Affairs Office was located, Indian and Northern Affairs, um, and uh, checked in to find out what they might have by way of teaching opportunities. Um, I was given, oh gosh, um, my choice of half a dozen um, different locations, um, some as far as uh, Tavani and Whale Cove up in the Arctic, um, to other reserves that were situated in the south. Um, and um, the personnel officer at the time said, well, um, if you're leaving Ottawa mainly because you had too many students in in your class, we have a a school, it's a one-room school in northwestern Ontario where there were only four students this past year and um, there are no roads into the village but it's on the CN Main Line Um, and um, if you want it, it's yours Um, and being very naive and ignorant, Um, I jumped at the opportunity. um, And so in August, um, took the train um, from Ottawa. It was about a 22-hour trip um, from Ottawa to Collins um, in northwestern Ontario. Um, Collins was a village um, of about 100 people, if everyone were home. Um, It was an Ojibwe village. there was a trading post there um, run by Peter Patience Um, and uh, Peter was as he described himself a half-breed we would say Métis nowadays Um, and uh, his father was a Scot and his mother was Ojibwe Um, his wife was Ojibwe Um, and uh, Peter sort of ran the village in many respects um, in a positive way. Um, so anyway, um, about 11.30 at night, um, I stepped off the, uh, the train, the transcontinental, um, one could get it to stop anywhere along the way, really, in those days, um, and so I got a stop at Collins, and um, they unloaded all the stuff from the baggage car um, down to the side of the track um, and um, Peter and half a dozen other guys and I hauled the uh, material down to my teacherage which was about 50 meters away um, from the tracks and um, that's where it became my home for for two, two
0: years. What did your family say when you were going here?
1: They, I'm sure, wondered what on earth I was thinking. Um, You have to understand that there was... (laughs) If if today we have very little awareness of Aboriginal culture and communities, um, back then there was virtually none. Um, They were a different solitude altogether. And, and so as white people, um, we really knew nothing um, about um, Aboriginal culture and, and communities. Um, and so they just, I'm sure, couldn't understand why on earth I would want to go and live in the middle of the bush um, without any
0: amenities. Um, why did you want to go live in the bush with no amenities? You're talking no electricity? Yeah. At times, no running water. A uh, one-room schoolhouse, which you thought was four kids, but turns out to be thirty-two. Yeah. Um, In the middle of nowhere, where it gets to minus forty, by yourself, not a friend, not a. What, what was it about that? That you, you that yeah. made you jump at that.
1: Or well, remember that little two-year-old who, who went on his walk independently? The, uh, the, the 21-year-old was the same guy. And again, um, I, I have always been comfortable with myself. Um, and um, it was a good chance um, to be somewhere um, in a totally different um, cultural environment, a different language environment. Um, Peter and family could speak English, of course, um, but most of the families, the the language was Ojibwe, um, and the kids had a smattering of English. And remember, that was before there was television or even a reliable radio service, for that matter. Um, And um, so, you know, the inundation of of mainstream culture hadn't occurred. Um, And so it was a matter of um, being in the environment and observing it, recognizing that Oh, I had a role there, but I wasn't really part of it. Um, and that's, um, that's an important quality or skill, I think, that I, I would encourage people to develop. Um, by all means, be engaged. But if you can at the same time stand back and observe yourself in that setting and come to understand who you are there, um, if that makes any sense. Certainly. Um, it, it, you know, again, um, just helps with one's intellectual understanding, I think. I would assume.
0: I just, people don't think, most people don't think like that 10 years ago, let alone right now we have too many distractions. We're too busy. Yeah. I just think you go to the middle of nowhere, Ontario. Like, I I played hockey and tried it. I've been to Sioux oh, Lookout. Okay. Yeah. And Sioux Lookout is is pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And when I looked on the map to where he, Collins, Ontario is, and I suggest anyone who's listening to this do the same, it is in the middle of nowhere. So you have no... I mean, you have things to uh, occupy your time. You could go fishing or yeah. uh, do the trails, or I'm, I'm sure there was other things, but there was no, you know, satellite TV. There was no phone. There was no million different things. You're, you talked that you didn't even have, you know, contact really with the outside world. So you were in a segregated little area with a, pop, a small population of people, That had to have been many a night where you either sat around talking to people or many a night of reading books or what have you Mm -hmm. and getting to self-reflect, which most people don't get that much time to self-reflect or don't want that much time anymore to self-reflect.
1: True. Um, And, you know, again, it's if you choose not to self-reflect, then you're handing over control of who you are to somebody else. Um, and that's never a good thing Um, and yeah uh, um, we didn't have the distractions you're absolutely right Um, but again um, the wonderful thing about living in that environment was that it was a chance for me um, to learn about things that I was totally unaware of Um, you know I'd go out with the kids you know, walking, you know, the kids would say, you know, I set some rabbit snares um, along such and such a trail. And I had never set rabbit snares in my life, living in the city, of course. Um, and so we'd go out um, and, and the kids would say, right there, um, there, there's the snare. And I'd look and I couldn't even see it. <laughs> Um, Let alone know how to make one, um, but you know, as I paused and looked, ah, okay, I I see the snare now with the brass wire, um, and 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 I see how um, the <laughs> we called them rabbit roots, um, how the. You know, little branches had been put to funnel, funnel them in. The, the, the rabbit in, into the snare. Um, and so, you know, I learned um, from the kids. And I learned things about their culture and their language. Um, and because I was willing to pause and watch and listen... Um, they were willing to show me things um, that were totally beyond my experience Um, and so I learned some Ojibwe I would never claim to be fluent Um, I learned how to uh, read and write syllabics um, which is that set of symbols that replaces our alphabet um, for many Aboriginal languages Um, I was able to teach syllabics to the kids as well, um, having learned it. Um,
0: and it, it was a wonderful experience. How about getting water in minus 40?
1: That's, again, something one learns how to do. Um,
0: the <laughs> Certainly, the first time you went down to the, the ice and pounded a hole through, you must have been thinking. What on earth have I got myself into?
1: Yeah, well, um, there was a gasoline-powered water pump in the house um, that had a character of its own. Um, And there was a shallow well um, in front of of the teacherage. um, And that was fine until the weather got very cold. Um, And then it was a matter of fetching water from the lake. Um, And thank goodness the lake water was still drinkable in those days. and um, so what one would do, um, when I got up in the morning, in the winter time, I'd take the big square wash tub, um, put it on the toboggan, take it down to the lake, um, and one had, you know, his family's or his own ice hole, <laughs> uh, water hole, um, that was chopped in, in, into the ice, um, and of course... Because of the climate, um, the ice got pretty thick. Um, and so you didn't want to have to chop through a meter of ice every time you wanted to get water. Um, so I'd take the, the washtub down, fill it with a pail um, from, from the hole that I'd cleared out, um, and just leave it. Um, because if I had taken it up um, on the toboggan back up to the teacherage, it would have sloshed out. Um, by the time I got it up to to the house. So I'd leave it um, and let it freeze Um, and then at lunchtime I'd go down um, and there was enough ice formed on the top at that point. It no Um, longer sloshed. It didn't slosh. I didn't lose
0: a drop. Um, I'd take it How many times did you have to do that before you realized that's the way to do it? well, again, you, you watch,
1: and you learn, um, and, and you see other people doing it. And similarly, how, how do you look after your, your, your waterhole?
0: Could, um, you, c- could, could you communicate? Uh, they spoke Ojibwe.
1: Yeah.
0: And you couldn't, at the beginning, you couldn't understand? Not a word. So that right there uh, reminds me of when I was playing hockey in Finland. I couldn't speak Finnish. Yes. So you have to wrap your brain around watching everything that happens in order to make it. Yeah. For lack of a better term. Yeah. So that's the way you approached everything there then I assume because you watched them how they got water. Oh, they left it there. Why did they leave it there? Yeah. And then you watch them take it up the next time you're like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: And you know, how, how do you save yourself an awful lot of work chopping through ice? Well, once you've taken the water out, you fill the hole with snow and the snow serves as a really good insulator, um, and the next time you go down, you don't have much chopping to do, you just have to take out the, uh, the snow and the slush. Um, and, you know, if there's been a snowstorm and a lot of drifting, and so where is the hole? Well, you take a little spruce bough, and you plant it there, um, so that you know where to go. Um, Flagpole. Exactly, um, and, and again, you. You know, there, there are things we can learn if we pay attention to other
0: people. And that is something that you have to do when you can't speak the language. Yeah. Because they can't simply just sit there and go, hey, just leave it that full. Uh, let it freeze because then when won't You go, oh, yeah, that's great. Like, you don't have that ability when, yeah. when they don't speak the same language.
1: Well, exactly. Um, and, you know, I mean, there, there was a, a smattering. I won't say there was no English whatsoever. People... Did have enough language to to cope, um, but um, their first language was certainly Ojibwe.
0: I had to chuckle because when you told I think it's uh, if I remember correctly when you told the conductor where you were heading, you said it's Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> could you could you just tell me that
1: story? Sure. Um, they changed the uh, conductor and crew at Armstrong, which is the uh, station just east of, of of Collins. And so the new conductor got on and um, you know, walked down the coach, and where are you going? Well, I'm going to Collins. Ah, we call that Hollywood around here because that's where all the characters live. And I thought, ooh, okay, (laughs) well, I'm not sure what kind of characters particularly. (laughs) Um, But, um, yeah, Um, Collins, even though there were only about 100 people in the village, um, every human quality, every human failing um, was to be found there. Um, And... um, you know, alcohol abuse was, was a problem um, in, in the community, and of course that often would lead to violence of various sorts, and even to one murder that I was aware of. Um, and, um, you know, it, um, people, th- th- again, they were very distinctive uh, as, as individuals, and um, again, interesting to observe and, and learn from,
0: um, that range of characters. You had a word that I really enjoy in your writings about Collins, and one of them was persistence. You talked about getting a diesel generator, because at times, the school, no matter how many lamps you had, there wasn't enough light to imagine those people. And not wasn't enough light to even read as uh, for the kids. So you got a schoolhouse and you can't even do work. How much? How much effort did it take? And is that something? It seemed like a characteristic you've had all your life. Is something where when you wanted something, you just went after it, and a simple no was never enough to stop you. And I find that intriguing.
1: The. Um yeah, we, we live in a society that, in many respects, is too much governed by bureaucracies. Um, and um, Collins, um, even though the school had been there for, oh, I don't know how many years, um, had never been electrified. Um, and um, yeah, that was problematic um, because cold winter mornings that were overcast. Um, I could be there, the kids could be there at nine o'clock in the morning, and by and large, we were all there. Um, But you couldn't do anything in in the classroom because it was just too dull. You you couldn't read um, a book um, until things got brighter outside. Um, And... In a bureaucracy, the further away you are from a problem, the easier it is to ignore it. Um, And so as the teacher there, it was my problem. And so when I asked um, the regional office folks in Thunder Bay, you know, what can you do to get us a generator? Well, that's all done in Ottawa, and you know it has to be budgeted for, and um, you know the budget's already in for this year, etc. You know what?
0: Pass the buck along.
1: Every excuse you can imagine, and for my predecessors, I guess that excuse, that kind of excuse, was acceptable. Um, What you
0: find Don, is that that stops. Probably ninety six percent of people in the world, even today, yeah, a simple no, that's ah, impossible, and they walk away. Yeah, they don't think any further on. It.
1: But almost anything's possible. Hundred percent. Yeah, and so I was fortunate, I must say, uh, at Christmas time, um, having you know being a, being a resident of Ottawa, and I went home for Christmas. Um, I went down to Laurier Avenue. Um, to Indian Affairs office, found the office that is responsible for engineering projects, um, and I made my case. And they listened politely, um, but didn't do anything, of course. Um, Again, it was, you know, part of a budget process, blah blah. Um, And at Easter time, I went down for the holiday again, back to the same office, And I guess they had run out of (laughs) novel excuses to give um, and didn't really want to see me there another time. Um, And so they made the arrangements. And so after my first year in the summer holidays, um, when I got back, the crew was there installing lights um, in the classroom and electrifying the teacherage. Um, and um, it uh, it was a totally different place, and we were able um, every Friday night um, we'd order movies in. I ordered a sixteen millimeter projector, um, and again, nowadays who uses film in a projector? But. Um, you know, I got a projector, and we would order movies from the distributor in Winnipeg. Um, and they'd come, Winnipeg, Sioux Lookout, onto the Way Wayfreight, um, and to Collins. And we'd show the movie um, in the schoolhouse. The, you know, whoever was in the village would crowd in. Um, and, you know, we'd enjoy, a, oh gosh, a Western or whatever was popular in the day.
0: Do you remember what the first movie was you showed?
1: Oh, um, I, I believe it was um, a movie that was a biography of, um, oh gosh, who, who sang the country and western song, Your Cheatin' Heart? Um,
0: Oh, now you're m- racking my brain.
1: Ah, and well, it was before your time, obviously, but uh, <laughs> who, whoever that was, uh, an, an American country and Western singer who ended up in pretty dire straits because of alcohol. Hank Williams. Hank Williams. Um, and um, that, I believe, was among the first movies that we got in. If
0: you could... If you go back to that time when you just introduced power for the first time to a community and a movie for... Yeah. What was the atmosphere like with everyone? Were they over the moon?
1: Oh, it, you know, it was something everyone looked forward to. It, you know, again, there weren't a whole lot of other entertainments available. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it made the school... A much more significant p- part of the community. Um, it wasn't just something that the government imposed on them. Um, and believe me, in those days, the policies were impositions um, on on Aboriginal people. Um, you know, again, policies set by people who had vague cultural goals. Um, you know, i.e. to convert um, all of the Aboriginal people into um, productive white people in, in society um, and of course that was an impossible goal to achieve and an inappropriate one, um, but that wasn't necessarily obvious at the time um, and um, so yeah it, again one, it, it just helped me become part of the community as well.
0: You mentioned trying to convert the w- a way of life into what we know. You spent, and I don't know the exact amount of years, but you weren't from Collins, uh, I'm probably going to torture the name, Wobbequay? Uh Well, to Wabakwai. Wabakwai yeah. for a couple months? Yeah, on uh, that Fort Hope, Fort Hope, Garden Hill, Sandy yeah. Bay. yeah. like you spent a large chunk of your life on reserve schools. Yeah, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, uh, Collins wasn't on a reserve per se. It was on Crown Land, um, but it was a federal school, interestingly, uh, something of an anomaly.
0: So I find talking to you, you have an, a very knowledgeable background in a a prominent issue today yeah um first nations people are put onto reserves there are problems there uh that problem gets expounded now and social media has put a divide between everyone i just find you come from a very unique perspective i could sit here and try and Get, you know, waddle my way through the issue, but the truth of the matter is, I haven't done half of what you've done. Uh, I've read a few books; that's better than a lot of people, but not good enough to sit and try and truly dissect uh, and figure out how to what to do there. Coming from all the years you've you've seen of going through the different communities, is there a way to walk back out of that, or is it is it just a very giant? issue facing our society.
1: It's a very giant issue indeed Um, and there's not an easy road um, out of the challenges. Um, You know, you have to appreciate um, and and this is something I did come to appreciate. Um, The Aboriginal cultures, and there were many depending on the part of the country um, you lived in, the Aboriginal cultures evolved over thousands of years and they evolved to be successful in their respective environments, in natural environment as well as social environment. And so the family groups for example and, and, and Again, people in our society, our white society, um, don't understand this well. Um, The family units um, were the basis of um, survival in the bush. Um, Every family would typically have its traditional hunting and trapping area. And the families would come together um, at treaty time um, or prior to uh, the arrival of, uh, of white society. Um, they would get together for certain cultural festivals, I guess. Uh, um, and, and, but then they'd go back out. They didn't have to develop um, the social interaction skills um, that are needed for someone to survive in an urban environment. They didn't have to develop the governance structures um, that are so important to keeping our lives in order and services provided. They were relatively independent units as family units Um, and they had those skills and they served them well for centuries Um, and then our society invaded um, and tried to change in the guise of improving their lot in life um, we changed their way of life but we didn't do it in a thoughtful manner Um, we created Um, reserves and drew people in for education or health services such as they were Um, but the people didn't have the social skills to deal with that congregated setting Um, the people had to learn those they didn't have the The governance structure, you know, we talk about, um, you know, nowadays chief and band council and and so on as though they were the the same as the mayor and city council. They weren't and and they aren't um, in many situations. Um, The affiliation of those individual family units was very, very loose to any kind of formal band or tribal organization people would join and leave they would you know associate with this um, respected chief uh, for a while if they got tired of (laughs) of that association they they would more associate with this family cluster over here Um, and so there was that informality of connection um, and and again, so foreign to our, you know, democratic institutions um, that we're so accustomed to, and and when um, government policy and well, you know drew these people in, they were lacking in the governance and in interaction skills, and I, I don't say that in a demeaning way. Um, but they just hadn't developed them um, to, to work in that urban environment and to top it all off, um, the reserves never or rarely had economic resources or opportunities to provide any kind of a dignified existence on the reserve. Um, and. So the effects of abject poverty were piled on top of um, the challenges of a radically different social context for which people were not prepared. And that's not even to talk about the effects of residential schools, that's another story altogether. Um, But um, Fort Hope (laughs) <laughs> was an interesting place. I was principal there for three years. Um, it was uh, initially a six- and then ultimately an eight-room school. Um, and um, by and large, it was a relatively successful school um, in a relatively stable um, and social environment in Fort Hope. Um, Fort Hope was a relatively new settlement. Um, things hadn't had a chance to deteriorate badly in a social or governance sense. People were still in the building phase um, of their community. But unfortunately over time um, what was a fairly positive environment. Um, I watch the news and um, I read about the addiction problems um, for OxyContin um, that beset, it's estimated, about half of the the village population or the town population at this point. And, you know, again, that's a function, amongst other things, of misguided government policies, abject poverty, and desperation on the part of of the people there.
0: You can tell it means a lot to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, how do you fix something that you were a part of breaking?
0: that's a big question I think when it comes to the size of the problem it's not one community it's no s- systematic it's it's bigger than one thing but i think and i am and I, i'm half your age experience less than half of what you've done, especially in some of the communities you went through. But you've been in leadership roles, and I think leadership, especially at the highest of levels, you really need to understand what your choices and how they're gonna impact. And if you've never experienced some of the things you've experienced, how can you possibly know? And so to fix problems, the complicated procedure that might have to, or that would have to go on, you'd have to have some incredibly smart, experienced people. And I don't know yeah. that you can get a room full of those people together. No,
1: it's, it's very difficult. Um, a, it's difficult to find those who have the tools or wherewithal um, to develop policy or provide resources. It's difficult to find people who understand the problem. Um, It's difficult as well, and again, um, it's presumptuous and stupid, frankly, um, for an outsider to think that he can fix somebody else's problem, even even if we as a society were part of creating that problem. um, It's only the Aboriginal people who are going to be able to Address the issues that dominate life um, on reserves. Um, again, uh, you know, <laughs> our society um, took hundreds, if not thousands, of years to evolve its understanding of the value of democracy. And, you know, a, as a student of history, um, I have a an inkling of how imperfect our democracies have been um, over the years Um, you know go back a hundred years well a little over a hundred years and who had the franchise to vote well it was only men go back a few years beyond that and it was only men of a certain wealth Um, and you know gradually Um, we have learned um, that there are better ways of organizing our society and governing it. Um, And we've made all of the mistakes along the way. All of the possible stupid things that could have been done were done. And as societies, we've worked our way through those. And although we're certainly imperfect um, now in our political structures, um, we've come a long, long way. People living, especially in remote reserves, haven't had those centuries to evolve their understandings and practices in democratic institutions. Um, There's a tendency um, in some communities to use political power for if not personal gain at least uh, the gain of one's family or connected people um, and in too many reserves there's always an in group and an out group um, and then maybe the next election <laughs> they, they switch places um, but um, again the, the, there's a challenge you have to appreciate um, that when you've got local control you've got local responsibility um, and that responsibility is to
0: all of the people in the community nepotism I was uh, I read it you taught me a word yesterday I'd, I I love learning new words nepotism was one that you'd written about yeah. and I didn't I read it, and I understood it in the sentence, but I hadn't, uh, I hadn't uh, and I, should, I, I say it, and then I'm not saying the definition. So nepotism is the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives or friends, especially by giving them jobs. Yeah.
1: And I think in terms of the one year um, <laughs> that, that I spent at Garden Hill Reserve in northern Manitoba, Um, as principal of the school there. Um, And the school at that time was still an Indian Affairs school um, but um, the policy was to encourage the development of a local school committee and give as much control as possible um, to that committee in the running of the school. Well. A school is there first and foremost to serve the learning needs of the children. But in a context where there aren't enough jobs to support a community, those jobs become real plums um, to hand out. And in that setting, there was a tendency for those plums to be given to. Um, the relatives of those with political power um, in the village, Um, regardless of the competence of the individual. And I had relatively high standards and expectations of people working in the school. Um, And if a job had been given to someone who wasn't prepared for it, Um, who didn't really care particularly about serving the students, but they were there because they were the chief's nephew, Um, then we had problems. Um, And uh, so although I'd say all of the places I worked um, were satisfying in many ways, um, Garden Hill was the one exception.
0: What I find, or why nepotism stuck out to me, especially when I read it and I was like, huh, that's an interesting word, is you don't have to look just at reserves to see that. You can go pretty much anywhere in any walk of life and see nepotism. Yes. Politics is is by far one that's easy to follow along and see what, what it has done there. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of power and ability to do things at that level. Yeah. And if you follow that, you can see it anywhere or everywhere.
1: There are some very recent examples of that <laughs> in the Alberta government, aren't
0: there? There certainly are. You know, we, we've been talking an awful lot about uh, your time, and, and I want to make sure that we, we talk about some other things because there are some other things in your life that are um, pretty significant. And I think you're, you know, we talked about before I hopped on you're about to celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary to Louise Lois Lois Lois. of course I had to say the wrong one. (laughs) Lois how how let's talk about some happy times not that these the other ones uh, your experiences aren't but let's talk about Lois here how did you meet
1: okay Um, back years ago um, it was possible for one to become a teacher with one year of teacher college training after high school
0: in Ontario. So um, go to school for one year, and you're, here's your degree, go start teaching kids. Yeah,
1: it wasn't a degree, it was a teaching certificate, but um, yes, um, and that's the program that I could afford. Um,
0: well, when, when you go to Collins, then how much are you making off a of one-year teaching degree?
1: Ah, well, that was my second year of teaching. Oh, sorry, second, yes, 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 yeah. sorry. My first year in Ottawa, I made $3,800 for the year. For the year? For the year. Okay. Um, in Collins, um, because of the isolation pay, et cetera, um, I made $4,200 for oh. the year. And was that good money? Um, yeah, um, it was. Um, and the reason I would say that... Um, is that um, when I compare my earnings uh, in my second year of teaching, I made more in that one year than my father ever made as a clerk working for the CNR for his entire career. Um, And so, um, relatively speaking, um, it wasn't, wasn't a bad salary
0: say that again you made more money than your father did yeah
1: after working as a clerk for the cnr um for oh gosh i don't know let's say 30 years at that point 25 years um his annual salary um, was less than what i made with my 4200 in my really? second year yeah um and so Again, again, you can only say whether something is a good or a poor salary in relation to. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's the, the gauge that I use.
0: Okay. Well, then let's go back to your wife. Or your, Yeah, like Lois. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's go back to Lois. So anyway,
1: um, because I only had very limited <laughs> training and formal education, um, during the summers... Um, I would go back and knock off a couple of university courses um, as I worked on my Bachelor of Arts degree at that point. Um, And after two years in Collins I went back for a full year to the University of Ottawa. And it was during that year that mutual friends uh, introduced Lois and I Um, and uh, over the course of several months we uh, Found each other quite acceptable.
0: Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I love when I talk to people around your age. Acceptable comes up all the. Yeah, we were acceptable. What does acceptable well, mean?
1: Uh, um, we got along well. We understood each other. Um, we tolerated each other <laughs> as as individuals. Uh, uh, What did
0: you do for your first date? Do you remember your first date? Yeah,
1: um, it was um, a party that I hosted over at my mother's house, actually, um, down in our rec room in the basement, and just a small gathering of friends. and uh, And Lois came along with with one of her friends. Uh, Lois was um, a laboratory technologist. Um, at the Ottawa Civic Hospital Um, and uh, one of her acquaintances um, in the same program uh, was the uh, girlfriend of a chap I took some courses with um, at the University of Ottawa and so as mutual friends do um, they set us up and we went on from there.
0: When you talk about dating someone or getting married to somebody, the words I keep hearing are acceptable? And tolerate, compared to today, I feel like you are looking for the needle in the haystack. Well, and and maybe you were back then too. I shouldn't overstate that. But I never, I don't hear acceptable or tolerate anymore when people are looking for a companion. Uh, Was it was marriage looked at differently? Do you think back then? I think interpersonal relationships were much
1: less casual. Um, than they are now um, in in the sense that uh, you know even uh, even from the point of view of uh, you know engaging in sexual activity um, birth control was not commonly available in those days and I think uh, many people were much more cautious um, about their relationships um, than they are nowadays. Um, and uh, so, you know, there wasn't that um, instant hookup um, <laughs> that um, I, I think may be popular <laughs> in, in most circles today. Um, it tended not to be done. Um, and I think in many respects we were closer to um, some of the traditional values, if, if you like, um, of our, our forefathers, um, foremothers. Um, and uh, so again, there, there was um, a little more reserve, perhaps, in, in the relationships than um, less familiarity. Instant
0: familiarity was,
1: was typically not there.
0: So what was it about Lois then that drew you in? Ah, Um,
1: she was bright, um, she, again, seemed to pay attention to who I was, um, and, um, you know, again, we were able to share ideas and thoughts and, and understandings, and, um, She had a little bit of an adventurous spirit as well, uh, um, knowing that, you know, I was going to be in Ottawa for a year and then it was back up to the bush. Um, And, you know, she was someone adventurous enough um, to take the risk uh, of going into, again, what was for her a very foreign environment. Uh, um, She grew up on a dairy farm outside of Ottawa. Um, And, you know, a a very small community, um, very much with its own cultural traditions, uh, settled by Irish and Scots settlers. Um, And, uh, you know... She had no knowledge of, uh, of Aboriginal people whatsoever. Not sure she had even met one. Um, and she was willing to take a chance and uh, come with me as my wife to, uh, again, if you thought Collins was in the middle of nowhere, um, Fort Hope was 125 miles northeast of there. Um, and uh, a fly-in location. No
0: roads. No betting the first night, either. No it? betting the first night. Um, I can imagine you may have heard a few choice words about that.
1: No, no. Um, you know, again, it was a matter of attitude. Well, how are we going to make this work? Um, and uh, so we did. Again, a, a degree of self-reliance, I guess, is, is, the, is the key. How did you propose? How did I propose? Ah, um, we went up on a drive into the Gatineau Hills, north of Ottawa. Stopped at a lookout um, there, and I asked if she would marry.
0: Did you have the ring already?
1: Did you? I did. I did, Um, and you know it was modest, I suppose, by many standards. because although my, my salary was okay, it was, didn't allow luxuries particularly, um, but it was sufficient to the occasion.
0: Where, how was the wedding? How, uh, many, how many people size? Was it in Ottawa?
1: No, it was uh, in Lois's home village of North Gore, Ontario, which is about twenty miles south of Ottawa, um, and the wedding was conducted in an Anglican church um, because, um, because the checkered religious affiliations of, of her family, whether they were Presbyterian or Anglican, um, was moot. Decade to decade. Um, and uh, so, anyway, nominally Lois was a member of the Anglican Church. Um, I was previously a, a member of the Presbyterian Church. Um, and um, we met her and her family's expectations, I guess, in terms of going through the uh, instruction um, that. Is the or was the premarital instruction given by uh, by the, the the local Anglican uh, clergyman, um, and uh, one of the uh, parts of the Anglican uh, ceremony that uh, Lois noted, um, without a lot of zeal, um, it used to say in the Book of Common Prayer. I don't know if it still does. Um, wives submit yourselves to your husbands. Um, <laughs> uh, she she's willing to engage and collaborate, but submission is not um, a watchword that uh, she would readily use.
0: I've always argued uh, with my wife. In the favor of submission I think that's I think she I married uh, my wife because she's one of the smartest women I've ever met yeah. and to not approach it that way you lose half of the equation and she has a different perspective and a very smart perspective yeah. from mine yeah when you get two smart minds working on a problem from different angles you can usually figure it out and why on earth would you ever quiet one side and say it's on my way or the highway it made no sense to me
1: It makes no sense whatsoever because if you have only one smart mind available, it tends to become arrogant and it tends to go down a wrong path. Um, And there's no one there to catch you and say, hey, um, take a look here. Um, There's got to be another way. Um, And so, yeah, um, you... If you're very fortunate, um, you will be connected um, with a spouse with that perspective and
0: ability. Your first child, when she is born, you are nowhere near her. Yeah. Her, sorry. Yes, sorry. You're, sure. you're up north. And yeah. Lois is in Ottawa, correct?
1: Yeah. Um, we were, at that time, I, I was beginning my principalship in Garden Hill Reserve in northeastern Manitoba um, at Island Lake. And um, of course, there weren't any maternity facilities available there. Um, and so we thought it best if if Lois stayed behind, where we did have family um, in Ottawa. And so, uh, yeah, Josie was born in September um, and uh, at Riverside Hospital in Ottawa. Um, Again, there's a communications difference. Um, Back then, um, Island Lake was served um, by a radio phone, Um, a radio phone that was over actually in the Hudson Bay store um, on the island nearby the reserve. And um, it was, (laughs) first of all, it was over the radio waves. Anything that was broadcast was anything but private. Um, Secondly, um, it was subject to um, atmospheric interference. Um,
0: (laughs) So if it wasn't a perfect weather day, you were pooched.
1: Exactly. And so in the end, um, the word of Josie's birth got to me three days after the fact. Uh, brought in by uh, one of the pilots flying for uh, St. Andrews Airways, um, who uh, came into the the community.
0: I don't know if difficult is the right word, but how tough was that to be sitting so far away from the birth of your first child and not having three of my own, almost missing the first one by uh, how quickly he came? Yeah. Um I, I read that and I found, man, that must have been difficult. Well, you
1: wonder, you know, just where things are in the process and how people are doing, and, um, you know, I had every confidence that things would go well, um, and that there was adequate support available. Um, and there was. Um, but, you know, one, one is, distracted certainly by by those musings um, and I was very pleased and relieved to uh, ultimately get the message. Um, yeah, even uh, with the birth of our second child, Kayla, um, I missed that one as well. Um, we were living on Sandy Bay Reserve in southern Manitoba at that point, um, about 60 miles north of Portage La Prairie, um, and. Um, Lois went in the night before and I was supposed to be called um, as the birth was imminent. Um, the message never got out to me and so again I arrived uh, a wee bit late for, <laughs> for, for that birth as well. And, uh, um, but at least
0: the same day. Um, and so that was an improvement. Back then, were the men in the delivery room with with the the women giving birth? Absolutely not. No. I was thinking that. So, it, it, as mu- as big of a deal as it was that you weren't there for yourself, yeah, you weren't supposed to be in the delivery room anyway. So no, it, w- it no. wasn't like you're missing out on that part. You're missing out on being around after the child had been born. Yeah, yeah. after your daughters have been born. Yes.
1: Um, and you know uh, again one had the satisfaction I suppose of being at hand you were down the hall in the waiting room kind of thing um, and could go in at a suitable point but it was a very uh, clinical process Um, it was something between the 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 mother and and the doctors at that point Um, husbands were not Involved, um, and we're not welcome to become involved at that stage.
0: Did you think that was ridiculous at the time? Do you wish you could have been in the delivery room, or you're like, you know what, I, I don't really need to be in there.
1: No, I think the latter is <laughs> more, more, more the case. I'll will
0: um, s- say this: I'm not a queasy guy, yeah. uh, but on Casey, our our last one born, they had to put a chair there, and I had to sit in it with my head pretty much in between my legs because yeah. I was. It was. Uh, it's a stressful time, and I, I kudos and hats off to every single woman out there who gives birth. Yeah. Because that process is not an easy one. <laughs>
1: yes, and you know I, I'm sure I would not have been helpful um, <laughs> in the
0: circumstances. Over 50 years, coming up on 50 years. Yeah. When you look back at being married to a woman that long, what are some of the lessons you or lessons learned or advice you could give to people who are just starting out in a marriage as something that you should try to stick to or impart on your journey to last 50 years 50 years is a long time 50 years is an accomplishment because i mean it just every year that goes by divorce just becomes a very common thing yeah and less of a judgmental not that that's ever right but it used to be that you're kind of like, yeah, they got divorced. Now it's just like, it's almost applauded if you get it, well, they got divorced. It yeah. wasn't working. Yeah.
1: One of the greatest challenges, I think, to us as we age um, is not to become caricatures of ourselves. Um, we have a tendency, if we have a character trait of some sort, to build that trait out so that it becomes more dominant, it becomes who we are. Um, And anything drawn out too far, it's one thing to have a character, it's another thing to be a character. Um, And you know, if we're not careful, we can become cartoons of ourselves. Um, And I think a good marriage is is one where um, the partners help each other um, temper the tendencies that each individual has um, so that we don't take them too far.
0: So then my next obvious question is how has your wife helped temper you or in what way has she done that to ensure that you don't go down the road that you don't want to go down or
1: yeah or or to go down the road that I did want to go down and shouldn't have um and and um no I it, it it's again a matter of respecting the the partner listening um who is this person what's important to her um how do I balance off that with what I think is important to me um, and where are the trade-offs possible um, and without sacrificing one's integrity um, to temper some of the tendencies that we might have um, and you know that's a mutual process um, and, and um, I think as a consequence um, we end up as better, more understanding, tolerant people um, than we otherwise might be left to our own devices.
0: Hmm. I think what I hear out of that is communication, a lot of communication, and the ability to listen to what the other person is saying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But again, without losing one's own integrity. Um, and, and y- you know, that's where um, the ability to compromise um, comes into play. And um, there are those individuals, you know, who would relate to Frank Sinatra singing, I Did It My Way. Um, who, who would say, ah, oh, no, you know, if you're compromising, you're giving up too much. You're giving up, she's giving up, um, and neither of you ends up with what you want. Well, sometimes, quite often in fact, um, again, if you temper what you want and bear in mind how it affects others, um, then you end up as a better person as a consequence.
0: How has fatherhood been? I'm sorry? How has fatherhood been, being a father? Uh,
1: um, Like most fathers, I suspect, in retrospect, I wish I had spent more time um, with my family, with my daughters, as they grew up. Um, You know, I was perhaps more career focused um, than I could have been. Um, And you know, you, you never get those years back. You don't get a redo um, as, as you see your children develop. Now, as it turned out, they turned out a real credit to themselves. Um, but I wish I had been more engaged, perhaps. Um, the, um, the plus, and I rationalize perhaps here a little bit, Um, The plus though is that because I was often otherwise engaged in career or studies, um, they developed some of the independence of character and thought that I think serves them really really well in their lives and careers now. Um, You know uh, We hear or read in these days of so-called helicopter parents um, who keep tabs on every move, every saying, every thought, every friendship um, that their children have. Um, And they intervene um, to make sure everything happens the way the parent thinks it should be. Um, Those parents are not doing their children a favor. Um, There's a golden mean somewhere between indifference and over-commitment that helps children become who they can be. Um, And um, given the way the girls have turned out, um, one an elementary school teacher, the other a social worker, they've
0: done well. What was one of your biggest fears of your children?
1: The fear that they would not realize their individual potential. You know, that they would make some dumb choice (laughs) that uh, prevented them realizing who they could become um, and to their credit um, they have found
0: the right paths for them. What well, was it what did you do in order to try and prevent that from happening?
1: You know I don't know if I can claim a lot of credit for preventing that other than um, to set a tone, I suppose, in the household to the extent that I did set the tone um, of, you know, high expectations um, and giving them opportunities to think for themselves um, and to uh, be available to them um, if they needed help with something. Um, But again, not to overimpose um, as a parent. Um, if, if that passive um, approach, I guess, uh, has anything to recommend it, um, then I could be credited with, with that to some degree.
0: Well think we best talk about lloyd for a little bit yeah really (laughs) (laughs) uh, your life up until lloyd uh and this is to diminish nothing you've done in lloyd is fascinating and i find your journey how you got here is just as important if not more so than the things you've imparted on lloyd and you know um One of the tough things, you know, when we, you have insight into this because you were on one of the first conversations you had with me about trying to do this and my style of doing it is, you know, I've listened to a lot of the old archive interviews. And I laugh when I start doing them because I take that format and pretty much throw it in the garbage. Not that I don't think it works, but it doesn't work for me. And so the journey is as much the intriguing part as the actual time spent in Lloyd, even if you'd spent your entire life here, some of the things you've done shape how you thought by the time you got here. And that in itself is very, very interesting. And so I, uh, you know, it's taken us a while to get here, but now we're, we're to Lloyd and we've skipped a few things and I hate to do that. But this is why when I talk to your board, we go, well, it should only be a 45 minute to an hour conversation. I laugh about that because. I've learned, 45 minutes doesn't get you very far if you want to really, truly find something out about somebody. When you first went through Lloyd, before you even came to Lloyd, <laughs> what did you think?
1: We came through Lloyd in 1978 um, on our way from Manitoba to Barhead, Alberta. And Lloyd Minster was an overnight stop along the way, and we stayed at uh, a motel. Um, still in existence over on the Saskatchewan side on the on what the, motel
0: would that be oh um,
1: what's the name of it now um, you've stumped me on that um, it's between 49th Avenue and 48th or 47th um, I'm I'll leave I'll leave that part blank, um, but we stopped there. Um, I was driving the U-Haul truck with our furniture, and um, one of the girls would ride with me. and uh, Lois was driving our our uh, state. Well, no, it was a, a, a Dodge um, sedan pulling the tent trailer um, behind us, um, and so we stopped overnight in Lloyd. And there was a bit of a northwest wind or breeze um, on that occasion. And we enjoyed the the smell wafting from the uh, asphalt refinery. And I said to Lois, thank God we don't have to live here, Um, (laughs) not knowing that ultimately this would become home. (laughs) And uh, so 10 years later, um, it did become home.
0: And what, what brought you to Lloyd? What was uh, the opportunity or what drew you to back here?
1: Yeah, it was the opportunity. I, in my previous situation in the county of Barhead, northwest of Edmonton, um, I was the deputy superintendent of schools, um, and Barhead was a wonderful situation, um, but one of the things that has been a hallmark, I suppose, uh, of my career, is that um, I've had a tendency to look at, well, what's the next rung on, on the professional ladder? And well, obviously, to go from a deputy superintendent to um, a
0: superintendent, superintendent would be
1: a superintendent. And if we use Alberta terminology, it's superintendent. If we use Saskatchewan terminology in Lloydminster, which we do, um, it's the director of education's job. Um, And so it became vacant, um, and uh, the board advertised, um, and I saw the advertisement and came for an interview, and um, I guess I ticked off most of the boxes that uh, the board here had in mind, and uh, so I was offered the job.
0: So over your time in Lloyd, which is no short time, you were 16 years?
1: Yeah, 16 and a half,
0: actually. What sticks out to you over your 16-and-a-half years then? as uh, something maybe you could hang your hat on or that you're most proud of?
1: If, if I were cynical, I would say survival. Um, <laughs> and 16 years is probably longer than any other director of education or, or superintendent in Saskatchewan or Alberta has put in. I don't know if it's a record but it would certainly be up there Um, and I think that speaks to a degree of um, leadership and adaptability. Um, It speaks to an awareness of context um, and moving forward um, at a rate um, that is acceptable to the community, whether it's the community as represented by the Board of Education, or the community is represented by the teachers in the organization, or the support staff in the organization, or the community as a whole, as, a, as the business community or residential community that pays the, the taxes to support the education enterprise. Um, And so, again, I I think some very positive um, changes took place under my watch um, over that period of time. Um, And uh, by and large, um, the changes were successful.
0: What's one of the biggest things you've seen change with I mean, obviously you had teachers reporting you and principals and that. What's the biggest change then over your time, that 16 years that you saw with that process?
1: I think part of the change that was most significant, and I still am delighted to see that change continue to evolve today, um, is a shift away on the part of teachers away from focusing, in some cases, almost entirely on the curriculum to increasingly be aware of their role as helping learners learn. Um, Lazy teachers or those who were caught up in a very traditional school environment would get their program of studies and they would teach that content. Now the fact that they were teaching it was one thing the other side of the coin and the question is were the kids learning it and were they learning it well Um, and in the best classrooms they were Um, because the teachers were sensitive to the learning processes um, that their students were going through. Um, The less competent teachers, it was much easier just to teach the content. Um, And if the kids got it, good. If they didn't, that was their problem. Obviously, they weren't trying. Um, And so they would be graded down as it were Um, there's been an evolution in education and and it continues to evolve and and, um, I'm delighted to see that process
0: shift so is it hmm. you are of the mindset teachers do the right things, more children will succeed. Yeah. Whereas, instead of maybe the thought process, if the children want it, they'll succeed. Yeah. Did I say that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. that's certainly a part of it. Um, if, if I'm being simplistic, teacher teaching is really quite straightforward. Good teaching is a matter of being aware of the curriculum and the things that are to be taught, but good teaching is a matter of reading the students. So what does this child, and each child is individual, what does this child understand about this particular concept, whether it's math or reading or social studies or science or what have you? Where is that child's mind now? vis-a-vis that content and how can I as a teacher stimulate the child to frame what he or she knows and then to ask the questions that cause him or her to question what he thinks he understands or she understands and then you make available the resources Um, that will allow the student to evolve, to grow, um, from what they thought they knew to something more sophisticated and refined. Um, That's what good teaching is. But it can't be done without engaging the student as a person. You have to respect the student first and foremost enough to to ask the question okay so so where are you in your understanding of this content Um, and I'm going to adapt this so that that's the starting point if I don't adapt it if I'm just trying to communicate some concept that's out in left field um, the kid might by rote um, memorize temporarily and then regurgitate for an exam or test or what have you and then it's gone. You have not succeeded as a teacher in that case. Um, But if you've helped that child's understanding to grow and given them a basis to let them grow even further, you've done your job.
0: Did you like being a teacher, then, or did you like being the superintendent? I liked being the superintendent, <laughs> uh,
1: and part of the reason for that is that um, I really don't like um, to be locked into rigid routines. Um, I like to be able to choose um, what I want to focus on at any given time Um, and um, the independence, I guess quasi-independence that came with being the principal or the superintendent or the director of education Um, I had more latitude I guess Um, again, that element of independence um, of character came through a wee bit there
0: Hmm. That's interesting. What about, well, let's, I, I'm, my brain is going 12 different ways. Um, what about Jack Kemp School? There was something that you have played a part in, in helping uh, build, I believe. Yeah.
1: Um, we took the process from um, the very beginning, which <laughs> unfortunately involved the replacement and demolition of the old Neville Goss School, um, Jack Kemp School became its replacement. Um, The old Neville Goss School at one time was the high school in Lloydminster and then converted to an elementary school Um, and it became somewhat decrepit um, despite really good maintenance practices in the school division Um, and uh, it just needed to be replaced and as is the case with so many buildings, it costs more (laughs) to renovate and bring up to code, um, an old structure, than it does to start from scratch on on a new one. And so that was the impetus, um, and um, it was a matter of acquiring the land for the school site, um, which was an interesting process in itself. Took a lot of negotiating with the then landowner, um, and uh, then figuring out the optimal design um, for the the, the school, um, the building itself. And um, again, if if you were to go over to that building, you would find one that is very very functional it's very well built, it's going to last a hundred years without any problem Um, and um, it was built with durable surfaces and and all of those good things that make it easy to clean etc. The provision was there for the addition of relocatable classrooms um, if and as needed and they were needed I negotiated with the city of Lloyd Minster um, to pay for part of the gymnasium um, because the uh, building guidelines in both Alberta and Saskatchewan um, provided for a pitifully small gym for an elementary school, totally unsuited uh, to the needs. Um, and so. I was able to work with the city of Lloydminster, and we agreed that if the city paid for effectively what was adding 50% um, to the allowable size, if you like, um, that we would ensure that the gymnasium was always available um, for after-school use for community um, recreation activities. and the city was wise enough to make that investment. And as a consequence, we have a very good gymnasium over at Jack Kemp. Um, So yeah, I'm pleased with that design. It's going to be there much longer than some of the throwaway buildings um, that are being constructed nowadays for school purposes.
0: What's one of the biggest changes you've seen in Lloyd over your years here?
1: In the city or in the school system? I think in the city. In the city. Um, We've become bigger. And bigger is not necessarily (laughs) better. Um, If you... um, read Greek philosophy at all, you'll, you'll, you'll um, read Aristotle saying that the ideal size of, of a city is about 10,000 people. Because in a city of 10,000, you have enough population to have all of the services and opportunities one might want but you're all so small enough to be intimately involved in its governance. As Lloyd, well, Lloyd Minster had about 17,000 people in 1988 when I came here, um, and we've grown to, s- s- well, we were over 30,000, goodness knows what it is now. Um, and with that increase in size, I've found that people are becoming ironically more distanced from each other um, even though we've got more population. Um, There isn't the degree of involvement. Uh, For example, um, take a look at uh, involvement in service clubs uh, in the community. Uh, Many of them struggle nowadays to get people to to join and participate in in the activities. Um, Churches Not that I'm a churchgoer, um, but churches, um, you know, find it more difficult to fill the pews um, and, you know, to be the influences that they once were in in the community. People have become more distanced from each other, even though there are more of us here. Um, And there's a loss there. Um, And, you know, even in the uh, city administration I, I've noticed um, the organization has become much bigger much more bureaucratic um, even the school division um, after I left um, added more staff more people doing specialized duties um, and um, just making it a, a more complex bureaucracy And I think there's a tendency to lose that human interaction in that kind of a context.
0: Hmm. What was Lloyd like then when you first came? And it was 17,000 people. Did they have pavement everywhere? Were they... What did you do for fun when you came here? I mean, you're a guy who's went to a place. You know, it's interesting to watch you talk about progression, and that's what it was. You started on a community of 100, and it Mm. went to 200, then 1,000, then, 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 and you end up in Lloyd as kind of the culminating, you know, the final act, so to speak. And you get to a place that has 17,000 people. What were the highlights of moving to Lloyd at that time in 1988? Uh,
1: well, um, again, uh, moving to, and I'll contradict myself, the fact that uh, you know Lloyd had 17,000 people, and the town of Barhead, where we lived, had almost 3,000. Um, there were more amenities here. Um, there was a movie theatre that actually had uh, multiple theatres within it, um, unlike the uh, single uh, theatre
0: facility in Barhead. A long ways from Collins, where you were showing movies in your one-room school. Exactly, yeah. Um,
1: And and so there there, there were those physical um, amenities that were, you know, nice to have. Um, and again, um, the challenge of working in our unique bi-provincial setting here, um, and bear in mind, I I had worked, well, you know, as a teacher and had my (laughs) certificates from Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, um, and uh, then Saskatchewan when I moved here. Um, I've had a chance to See different contexts, um, and if if you don't, well, <laughs> um, my kids and grandkids, I'm sure, are sick of me hearing this, hear, hearing me say this from time to time. Um, but you never ask the goldfish what she thinks of the water, and the significance of that. Um, is that the goldfish has been in that little bowl all her life. She knows nothing else. So the water is what the water is in that bowl. And it's important um, to have other perspectives to bring on situations. In the education context, it was helpful, I think, challenging and frustrating to many of our teachers, I'm afraid, at the time. Um, It was helpful for me to bring some of the perspectives that I'd learned in especially Manitoba and Alberta um, to the Saskatchewan context here Um, because, um, frankly, this. Saskatchewan education culture had become very complacent um, and very self-satisfied and people didn't challenge each other very much to change or improve or modernize. Um, There was a great emphasis on interpersonal relationships among teachers with their principal, with their superintendent and director, and with the Board of Education, and with them with the Department of Education. And um, we're all very comfortable with each other. We know each other well. And we know we're good people. And so we don't have to change anything. Because good people must be doing good work, right? Well, not necessarily. Good people perhaps could do better work, and they need to take a step back and ask themselves, um, so what are we doing, and how does it compare with what things are being accomplished by others? Um, And so that was one of the greatest challenges um, in coming to Lloyd Minster, into what had become a very comfortable work environment, professional environment, Um, and one that hadn't been moving forward in terms of keeping
0: up with curriculum development. Being a guy who would be deemed an outsider, was it a comfortable situation coming into, or did you have some tough years of slugging being that guy?
1: They were always tough years, Um, but um, again, as, as we've discussed, um, I've very often been the outsider. Actually, in.
0: all your life you've been the outsider. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so I had learned to cope um, with that, again, um, to the annoyance quite often of people I worked with. Um, but...
0: Um, That's who I was. How did did you cope? What do you mean, cope?
1: Um, By paying attention to people, to listening to them, by politely disagreeing sometimes, um, by challenging them. um, By, you know, for example, um, on international achievement testing um, that was done periodically, Canadian provinces would have schools participate and schools from different countries around the world would essentially, you know, write the same exams at comparable grade levels. Um, Canada tended to be among the top half dozen, typically, but within Canada, Saskatchewan consistently was in the bottom third in terms of student achievement. You know, ability to read, ability to solve mathematical problems, ability to write coherently.
0: So you Uh, saw that as a challenge to improve that.
1: Yeah. Um, And again, um, the idea, the very idea of using external benchmarks to measure local achievement um, was something that was totally foreign and very threatening um, to to the educators, to many educators, not all, um, in the community, because they thought they were doing quite well. Thank you very much. And you know, who are you to come in and change the way we've always done things? Um, but. Change was needed and um, again um, there were flaws I admit um, in in the testing program um, because um, Saskatchewan had nothing like standardized testing um, as a province at that time um, and so I arranged for the Alberta tests to be used in our schools now, it can be reasonably argued that the Alberta curriculum is a, is a little different from the Saskatchewan, and that's true, but not substantially different. Um, and when it comes to basic skills f- of students, really they, they should measure up um, to, the s- to similar standards. Um, and, but the very idea of bringing in an external standard You don't trust me as a teacher to evaluate my own kids and give them the mark? Um, Well, yeah, I trust you if you're using appropriate criteria. So let's talk about the criteria. And if they're not really well defined, well, then let's get some benchmarks where we can find them. And let's pay attention to what they tell us. Unfortunately, there's a tendency Um, among many teachers, and I I don't want to use too broad a brush here because Lloyd Minster has had and does have some excellent teachers, Um, but there's a tendency when a different idea, a new idea, is put on the table. um, There's a tendency for some teachers, all right, if we have to adapt or adopt this change, we'll adopt it and we'll throw out what we were doing before. No, you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Take the best of this idea, marry it with the best of what you have been doing, because you have been doing some things very well, um, and everyone's going to be better for it. Um, But to find that balance between change that is disruptive and change that is productive, that's a hard balance to strike. Um, And that was the challenge to leadership.
0: Change is always, there are very few people who like change. So change to, uh, I can see that as people find that threatening. Yeah, that's that's an easy thing to connect the dots there. I wonder, over your lifetime now, when you look back at everything you've done, what was your favorite decade? What what span of time did you enjoy the most? I'm living it. Your seventies.
1: Yeah. Um, what, what about it then? I suppose if one were to use a, <laughs> a building metaphor, it's not perfect, um, y- you know, as, as you live your life, you're constructing something. You're building it. Um, and hopefully as you're building, you learn the skills and wisdom, <laughs> Ho- hopefully wisdom at some point. Um, that comes along with with that stage of life Um, and if you make a point of it and not become lazy, intellectually lazy, if you keep reading, if you keep thinking, if you keep current with developments in the world, um, if you keep engaged um, with your community, you, you grow. Um, you know, when when I was writing the, the family histories, um, <laughs> it, 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 and, and I was doing the, the section, and I left it to the end, the section on me, um, I just added that in because I started with grandparents at that level. Um, one of the choices I had to make was what picture, if I had to choose a picture um, to put in this document that was the picture of Don Duncan, which picture would it be? Would it be the youngster toddling down the street as a two-year-old? Would it be the 16-year-old in Sea Cadets? Would it be the the, the young teacher up in, in the bush? Would it be um, the, the student at the University of Alberta? Would it be the director of education? Who is this person? Um, And I guess although I was each and every one of them, I'm now the sum of them. I'm different from each of them. Um, And um, I've benefited, I hope, from some of the insights Um, that each of those stages of life gave me. Um, And I'm delighted um, at this stage in my life um, to have the time um, to read and reflect, um, to learn, um, and to try and round out a little bit um, what little I know.
0: what then if you could go back to your 21 year old self what would you if you could sit down and have a conversation like this yeah you sit across from young don don's sitting there he's full of piss and vinegar he's on his way out into the bush what piece of advice would you give him be humble
1: don't presume um, that you've got the answers for other people. Um, Be humble, but be engaged. And if you can try to provide some leadership and make a situation better, be engaged.
0: Finally, what is the biggest one event You've witnessed, read about, seen, whichever way you want to take it over your lifetime, what is the one thing that sticks out? Which is probably pretty tough, when a, a one thing. But if you had a on a world scale, what is yeah. the one thing that you go, I remember I was sitting here, I could not believe this just went down. Yeah.
1: Well, it... it it's not so much an event as a process, and the extent to which we're degrading, the only planet that we have to live on, um, that's what I've been watching. And realizing um, that um, the standard of material life that we have come to expect and demand is outstripping the capacity of the planet to support it. Um, And as population increases around the world, and we're at, what, something better than 7 billion people now, we're using the world's resources at a rate that would require three planets to support on a sustainable basis. And that's terrifying. Um, You may have read that I spent a little bit of time in India. I did. I I was there for five weeks. Um, And one of the reflections, I guess, um, again, as the outsider observing, um, was I really hope that I am not seeing our future with overpopulation, poverty, um, terrible living conditions, inordinate disparity of wealth with concentration of wealth in the hands of very few and abject poverty on the part of the many. Um, I hope I'm not looking at our general future. And I'm not sure that I see the wisdom Um, among our leaders today um, to um, anticipate the challenges that we face and to figure out ways of of dealing with them constructively. Um, uh, It's it's concerning. Um, And again, um, it's not going to be easy To change our culture um, to the point where we address some of the issues meaningfully. Maybe we have some chances now, Um, the lessons that we can learn from the current pandemic situation may be helpful, but unfortunately there are always demagogues out there who blithely promise to lead the people back back to an imagined golden age um, That probably never existed and if we try to accomplish that image of a golden age we're going to need five or six planets worth of resources to support those wants And those five or six planets simply are not there.
0: Then what does the average citizen do?
1: The average citizen is going to have to get his nose out of his mobile device. He's going to have to see him or herself, in the context of a challenging environment, social, political, economic, and physical, and be willing to make some changes. Um, the, The problem, well, there are different problems. It's awareness, and again, to come back to the challenges that come with modern communication. Um, even recently in Lloydminster, we had two local newspapers. We had a local television station. That television station had an hour-long news program every night of the week um, that featured the important things that were taking place in our community.
0: Even go smaller than that, in Hillmont, where I grew up, which was a farming community, Yeah, had a part in the paper that was written by a local woman. Precisely.
1: There was that engagement, a recognition that where we live is vital to how we live. And important. And very important to us. Um, and so now, though, if you want news, where do we get it? Well, the newspaper, there's only one sort of now, and it really doesn't have much in the way of full-time reporting staff. Um, They're essentially on a gig-type assignment. Um, There is no such thing as local news to speak of on the local television station. Even local radio, the content has been farmed out to the... Well, multinational.
0: we could we could probably go down this road for two hours, 10 days, because yeah. I was just saying, the, you know, uh, Wainwright FM, Wayne FM. You know? Yeah. Um, For a few years there, their show was lackluster. And now it's gotten better. It sounds really good. Oh. But you'll notice they never say, hey, we're coming live from Wainwright. Yeah. Because what they've done is they farmed it out to their top talented team in calgary or vancouver wherever they're at i have no idea yeah and they never say they're in vancouver they never say they're in well maybe they say alberta i'm not sure but when you listen to them they're very good at never saying where they are yeah which is great i mean you get the top talent on your local station but you get none of the local to it
1: yeah and and you see this is part of and unfortunately i don't i don't think i'm not a one to see conspiracy theories. Um, I'm one though that recognizes, who recognizes that um, organizations take on lives of themselves Um, and in the entertainment industry um, they have become much more professionalized um, and much more concentrated um, and they've gotten away from the local coverage to something that is much more general, much more corporate, much blander, um, much less controversial, much more soothing, much less thought-provoking for their audience, much less offensive to the potential sponsors. And so everything becomes a a whitewashed shade of something neutral. And the consumer of that, the person who turns his radio on or TV set on or listens to uh, something on a smart speaker, um, and I'm guilty of all of the above. As am I. um, You know, you become soothed away from your environment. You're not stimulated, you're not goaded um, to become engaged politically in the affairs of your community or the affairs of your province or country. Um, And we're just settling into a very comfortable, blissful um, situation where we're giving up um, so much of our character and independence of thought. Um, and if if you read, um, oh <laughs> um, again I'll name drop here, um, there's a, a series of books by uh, a chap from Israel, educated at Cambridge, an historian, Harari is his name, um, and he wrote three books in a trilogy. Um, Sapiens, that takes a look at the evolutionary history of in people and societies. Um, Homo Deus, that looks at the ability of people now to create their environment. And again, this gets into the potentially dangerous um, potential of artificial intelligence and so on. And then the last book in his series is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And if I could write a book, if I were smart enough to do that, that's the book that I would have written, I think. Um, And, and, you know, again, um, it's a matter of appreciating ourselves as individuals in a context. and if you just lose yourself into that warm comfort of of corporate blandness that Stingray Music um, would give us, um, then you've lost opportunity to become, become something. Um, it's it's not not a pretty
0: picture. Well. That's where we're going to stop. I really have enjoyed this. Obviously, I've kept you talking for a long time. Oh. I was I was very, reading your story, I was very interested to hear about your journey. Um, and I've gotten to do just that, and it's been very, very enjoyable a couple hours. So thank you for coming in and sitting down with me. And um, I guess for, you know, you're part of the board that helped put this in motion for me to be sitting here and to sit with people such as yourselves and uh, i've really enjoyed the first four um, conversations i have had and i really do look forward to the ones to follow but uh, in particular don thanks for coming in and sitting down it's been a great pleasure hey folks thanks again for joining us today if you just stumble on the show and like what you hear please click subscribe remember every monday and wednesday a new guest will be sitting down to share their story The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time.